On the piano, we have Mr. Keith Gottschall. On the drums on stage left, Mr. Mickey Hart. On bass and vocals, Mr. Philip Lesh. On rhythm guitar and vocals, Mr. Bob Weir. On the drums on stage right, Mr. Bill Kreutzmann. On the vocals, Mrs. Donna Jean Gacho. On lead guitar and vocals, Mr. Jerry Garcia. Would you welcome, please, the Grateful Dead. Hello, this is Rob Hunt, and welcome to another edition of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Larry Mishkin from Michigan Law out in Chicago, Illinois. And that, of course, was the great, late Bill Graham introducing the Grateful Dead from the Great American Music Hall in 1975. Uh, how are you doing today, Larry? Rob, I'm doing great. I'm a big Bill Graham fan. Um, there's a great story to tell about him, and I'm excited that you uh, chose that topic for today's show. Well, I thought it was a timely one because, as you know, Bill passed away uh, just over 31 years ago, right before the October run in Oakland in 1991. Uh, Bill was unfortunately flying back from uh, the Concord Pavilion uh, after promoting a Huey Lewis show and going up there trying to convince Huey to do a, a bit of a benefit concert at the time. And on the way back in high winds, uh, his helicopter was blown in some power lines uh, where he and his girlfriend Melissa Gold and one or two others perished in the accident. And it was right before the Grateful Dead were meant to play a four-night run from October 27th to the 31st. Uh, starting two nights later. So, you know, obviously the entire Grateful Dead community was pretty well devastated. And that four-night run, in many ways, turned into a four-night tribute to Bill Graham and the legacy of work that he'd done, not just with the Grateful Dead, but with all other Bay Area musicians as well. So I'm sure you know a lot of these stories, Larry, but I mean, I think it's a, a great opportunity for us to discuss the impact that Bill had on the band and the impact that, quite honestly, Bill had on, on live music in general. I think that's absolutely right, Rob. And in addition, Bill's very, very unique background, which we'll get into in a few minutes, just adds a whole nother layer and a whole nother element to this, you know, considering his background and his his upbringing and, and the experiences he went through as a young child and how he persevered through all of that to probably become the largest, if not one of the largest uh, music promoters of his time at the time of his death. And he is single-handedly responsible. We, we heard Terry Haggerty from the Sons of Champlin talk about this, the impact that Bill Graham had on his band and all the bands in the Bay Area back in the late 60s when they were getting started and, and really you know, arriving on the scene. And there's just no way to tell the story without making sure that Bill Graham is included. So uh, I think our listeners are in for some good stuff today. Yeah, it's funny because you, know, you think about different eras of music and you think about you know, different genres of music. And there's always, you know, someone that had a huge impact, whether it was, you know, Barry Gordy with Motown or whether it was, uh, you know, whoever it was from Sub Pop that was promoting all the, um, the, the grunge bands in Seattle in the late 80s, early 90s, or, you know, the, the punk scene in London in the mid 80s or the new wave scene in New York. You know, different, different cities and different genres have had their moments in the sun where, you know, the, someone's created just a massive impact. But if you think about, you know, quote, the Bay Area sound that was, you know, really popular in the late 60s, that included bands like uh, you know Jefferson Airplane and Big Brother and the Holding Company and the Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Grateful Dead, uh, Moby Grape. You know the, the the list is is large, and uh, you know there's only one or two people that were truly responsible for that in the early days. It was it's largely you know Chet Helms from the Family Dog and Bill Graham, which became you know Bill Graham Presents BGP and sort of the whole Fillmore scene, and uh, you know both those guys were 
working together in the early days until they ultimately kind of went their separate ways with different venues, Chet with the, uh, I believe, the Avalon and, and Bill with the Fillmore. But, you know, you think about the the bands, you know, Santana being another one, you know, the, the bands that these guys broke and that, you know, really burst onto the uh, the national stage or international stage. It, it takes, you know, someone that believes in those bands to say, hey, you know, I want you to have a residency at my club or I want you to, you know, play more often. And I'm going to start taking you not just, you know, here uh, in San Francisco, but, you know, I'm going to start promoting you, you know, sort of throughout the region. And Bill, Bill was largely responsible for it. First in, in San Francisco, but then ultimately in New York as well. But even around the Bay Area, you know, it wasn't just the Fillmore. You know, he, he was responsible for the Cow Palace. He was responsible for the Keysar, obviously the Winterland. You know, he had multiple venues that, that he, you know, took over with different size um, audiences and said, you know, I'm going to create a venue and create a space where people go out there and have a great time. And, you know, we can get into some of the, the early days in the history of, of how that started off, but it's, you know, it is really, really unique, and it's such an amazing story. It is. And again, I mean, you consider that this was a guy who did not come from a traditional music family, who did not come from uh, anything. He came from uh, Europe, and he is a refugee uh, who was able to get to the U.S. shores in, I think, 1939, prior to the uh, uh, really the, the shutdown and the beginning of the Holocaust. And, and somehow, he I, I don't know the story of how he got out, but I know he got out and was able to make it to the United States. But basically as a young boy without much of a family or without much to be able to do. And, uh, you know, he, he managed to, you know, not just take care of himself, but put himself in a position where he really rose to the pinnacle of American music. And I, you know, I, I think all of those guys who you mentioned, Rob, all of those bands, any one of the performers in those bands would all sit there and say the same thing about the role that Bill Graham played and where they would be or not be without him and his willingness to, support all of them and, and, and give them a venue and give them a, access to the uh, to the whole San Francisco scene, which at that time was really like the testing grounds for the rest of the country, right? If you made it big in the San Francisco scene, all of a sudden every radio station in the country that thought they were hip wanted to be playing what they were listening to out there. And in, in that respect, he really helped shape the entire formation of, of what we know as rock and roll today and, and the live concert scene. And you know, whether it's, uh, you know, still going back and checking out his Wolfgang's vault collection of posters and, and other things like that, or, you know, just going on to relisten.com and typing in, you know, Bill Graham produced shows, you could spend the rest of your life trying to get through it all. And, you know, one show after the next would be just as amazing as you hope it would be. Yeah, it's uh, interesting you bring up Wolfgang's vault because Wolfgang was, uh, you know, the nickname that, that Bill had. You know, Bill was not born Bill Graham. He was born Wolf, I believe, Gronica, is how you pronounce it. Maybe that's, that's incorrect, but, you know, his German ancestry. And as you said, he escaped the Holocaust. Unfortunately, his mother perished at Auschwitz. Uh, he and his sister were sent to France uh, in advance of, of Nazism really taking root. And then from France was uh, was sent over to the United States to live with relatives. And his other, that was with one younger sister. He had two other siblings, and they were sent to China. And uh, he ended up moving from New York, where he was raised, out to uh, out to California to be closer to one of his sisters. But I mean, this is a guy that came from nothing. was was lucky to escape as an eight year old child, you know, prior to World War II, completely and totally self made. And you know, he was a scrappy kid that was uh, born and raised, I believe, in Brooklyn, and made his way out to uh, San Francisco after spending a time in the service, you know, serving the, uh, the the U.S. Truly, truly amazing. And you know, he got into promotion, I guess, by doing initially a, um, a benefit concert for the San Francisco Mime Troupe with Chet Helms, and then ultimately, you know, parlayed that into saying, I think I can do, you know, some additional uh, shows, and struck out on his own, but, you know, this, even the story of him getting his first permits is, uh, is pretty amazing, 
where at the time you needed to have a dance permit to be able to put on a, a live show and you know, getting a dance permit was up to the city to grant and if the city didn't really like the music you were promoting then they weren't going to provide that permit so you know he had to find someone that would either sponsor him that had the permit or he had to go out there and, and apply for one so there was a pretty big legal battle that you know bill had struck up with the city of san francisco before he ultimately became you know one of the city's favorite sons and so crazy to me that that's how it began but you know really starting in 1965 he started putting on shows in san francisco you know one of the first bands that he really became enamored with and ultimately became his, his favorite band was of course the Grateful Dead and, and that that partnership between those two lasted throughout the Grateful Dead's career and in many ways you know Shoreline Amphitheater is a testament to um, to that relationship when the Grateful Dead had started outgrowing a lot of the different venues around the country and different cities were saying you know post touch of gray that they didn't want the Grateful Dead in their town anymore and the camping and venue was too much Bill came to their rescue and said okay I'm going to find you a home that no one's ever going to say you can't play and that was Shoreline. If uh, people remember when Shoreline first opened, at the top of both the tent poles, you know, it wasn't quite a steelier face, but it was certainly a red and blue circle that was on top of both those tent poles to signify that this is the Grateful Dead's venue, and uh, we've got a place that they'll always be always be welcome to play as long as I'm a promoter. So, you know, that relationship started early, and there was a love-hate for a long time, but you talk to any person that's, you know, affiliated with the Grateful Dead, whether it was you know, their roadies or whether it was their uh, their, their management team, and they would all talk about, you know, the love that, that Bill had for the band, but they'll also talk about the fact that Bill pulled no punches. You know, he was, he was the guy that was telling them to get their shit together and make sure they practiced, make sure they hit their set times on time, and, you know, don't show up uh, half in the bag, you know, to, to shows. If you're playing for me, I expect you to bring, bring your best. He was a taskmaster. He, he didn't mess around, and, you know, they loved him for it. They didn't always want to hear it, but, uh, but you know, the, the stories I've heard from a lot of people that did work with Bill directly either guys that work for Bill Graham Presents or, or guys who's, you know, like Blues Travelers, another band that did a lot of work with BGP and David Graham, Bill's son, managed them for a while. So they had great exposure. And I've heard tons of stories, you know, from, from that team about what it was like working with Bill in his later years. But uh, mad respect for, for what this guy created basically from nothing. It's true. And, and, you know, regular listeners of our show will remember when Terry Haggerty was on and told the story about the night that the Sons of Champlin were opening for the Grateful Dead. And um, uh, he and some of his bandmates got stuck in bad traffic coming across the Bay Bridge from Oakland, and they were running significantly late. And what they later found out happened was when Bill Champlin went to Bill Graham and said, I, I can't start yet. My guys aren't here. Graham told him, you're due on stage in five minutes. Get on and play or you'll never play again. Uh, which, according to Terry, was one of Bill's favorite threats to people. And that's when Jerry and uh, Phil decided that they would step out and they would uh, fill out the band for the Sons of Champlin so that they could go ahead and play. And the end of the story, of course, was that when Terry and the guys got there, Bill told them, not so fast. I, I like what I'm hearing on stage right now. And, you know, he could be mercurial. There's no doubt about it. But I think that the fact that all these guys ultimately loved him uh, was a testament to the fact that he really was uh, working for their best interests at the end of the day. And, and they realized that. I mean, in fact... You know, as I recall the story, you know, he even gave the dead a little bit of room when they wanted to start running their own club uh, for a little while and, and, you know, their own record label and everything. And Bill said, great, go out and do it. And then the story, of course, is I uh, got tired of doing it, went back to him and said, no, we'd rather have you do it. And, uh, you know, and it goes on from there. But, um, uh, yeah, he, he's he's truly a, uh, a legend in the music industry and in the dead industry. We got lots of good stories about Bill to share. But uh, maybe we go back and focus on some of the music for a minute from the... Um, from the tribute, what do you have uh, tabbed up for us next? Well, I think uh, a lot of people out there know that you know Bill was a huge fan of the Grateful Dead's music, and if you were to pick one song that he claimed was his favorite, 
uh, it'd be Sugar Magnolia. And, uh, you know, the dead, as I said, are slated to play this four-day run. Going into that run, they also decided to add an extra date for a celebration in Golden Gate Park that we'll talk about here in a minute as well. But they decided to open up that, uh, that run with something that they normally use as a second set closer, which is Bill's favorite song in tribute to, to Bill. So let's hear a little bit of that Sugar Magnolia. you know the stories they didn't uh finish that that sugar mags they uh, they didn't play the sunshine daydream part of it and they didn't play it you know throughout the rest of the run which you know i don't think you've ever seen a sugar mags without a sunshine daydream attached to it uh, i sure haven't but they had something up their sleeve and we'll get to that you know a little bit later in the show but you know what a great way to, to kick off a tribute to uh to, to bill who you know i think they uh Affectionately referred to as Uncle Bobo uh, throughout the years. And, you know, I think uh, yes. you know, most fans of the Grateful Dead know that some of the best Grateful Dead shows are the ones that Bill did introduce the band the way he did in the beginning of this show. And even if it was just coming out and just saying, ladies and gentlemen, the Grateful Dead, uh, there was a certain you know, sort of feeling of like Bill is there, Bill's introducing the band, Bill's on stage you know, with the band. So it's just a, a, very, a very integral part of the Grateful Dead and kind of their, their evolution. And I don't think it can be overlooked that, you know, without Bill, I mean, everyone talks about with certain businesses, it helps to have an adult in the room. And, uh, you know, he was the guy that would handle the receipts. He was the guy that would handle the riffraff. He was the person that decided who could stay, who, who should go. If there was, you know, people in the audience that weren't, weren't acting appropriately, Bill was not afraid to toss people out. He wasn't afraid to tell people they were acting inappropriately. Uh, he was kind of like the guardian angel uh, over the entire scene at that time, for better or worse, like it or not. Uh, I think ultimately most of the musicians that played for him appreciated the fact that he did the stuff that they wouldn't want to do because they didn't want to alienate their fan base. But there was Bill, you know, stepping in where someone needed to step in. And he did it against some pretty rough and tumble guys. I mean, this is San Francisco in the 60s. I mean, this is, you know, him having to deal with the, the Hells Angels. It's him having to deal with, you know, other ruffians. You know, it's uh, the Fillmore itself was, was opened up in, you know, one of the toughest neighborhoods in San Francisco. And, yeah, when he first got his first concerts there, it was due to a promoter that mostly promoted um, uh, soul acts and R&B acts that, you know, gave Bill a shot. But, you know, let him do it in a, in a place that most others didn't want to touch that venue just for fear of where it was. That's true, Rob. And uh, you, when you say the adult in the room, it resonates and it resonates for a lot of reasons. One, because, in fact, he was and he was the guy that that really helped steer them in the direction that they ultimately went. But also there's a, uh, a funny story that Bobby tells about how because he was the adult in the room, he uh, aggressively avoided dosing. Bill Graham did not want to dose. He needed to be straight. He needed to run the evening and he needed to run all the business. And notwithstanding the many efforts of the dead and their hanger honors to dose whatever it was that Bill might be taking part of, he was fastidiously uh, careful in terms of what he would go for and what he wouldn't. 
And so they tell the story about how finally one night in a desperate attempt to get to Uncle Bobo, they got one of his cans of Tab or Sprite or whatever he was drinking out of the refrigerator and they were all still sealed. So Bill knew they were good and they found a syringe and they were able to stick it into the side of the can and inject it so that when Bill drank the, the, the pop later, did in fact dose himself. And Bill picks up the story to say that he was ready to kill them all, but later on found himself out in front of the stage, leading the band like a conductor and really had one of the best times of his life. And, you know, to me, that speaks volumes about the nature of the relationship between the dead and, and Bill Graham. You know, Bill's the kind of guy who, if you know, he doesn't want to get dosed and you dose him. I typically assume that's not something he's just going to take lying down. But in this instance, he knew that these were guys who, who loved him and were just trying to have some fun with him the way that they have fun. And, you know, finally having gotten caught by them, he, he played along and had a great time with it by all, by all accounts. But it's a fun story. And I love hearing about that because it's always fun when the adult in the room lets their hair down a little bit and is willing to, you know, to play with the, uh, the other crazies. Yeah. And it, it certainly is, um, you know, not his personality. So, you know, certain people I think would take that a different way, but I think Bill had a, a sense of humor to, to accept something that, you know, being dosed, uh, I think it's probably happened to you, Larry. It certainly happened to me. You know, there's times you're like, oh, come on, really? Like, did you have, like, I didn't want to doze right now. So, you know, getting, getting dosed can be a, a really fun experience. It can also be a really annoying experience. So, uh, and I'm, I was someone that was, you know, more often than not perfectly happy to be dosed. Uh, you know, if I'm someone that had never used LSD before and, you know, it happened, then, then yeah, thank you. You, uh, you aren't all that pleased and you can certainly, you know, seek vengeance on the person that did, you know, did it to you. But yeah, I mean, hey, we, we did talk about the fact that, you know, Bill was born in Germany, um, you know, which is maybe a good segue into some of the news we've got here in, in Canvas this week. But did you see the uh, the news of, of what's happening for Canvas in Germany? And I wonder what old, old Uncle Bobo would think that, you know, German Parliament now has actually voted to, uh, to legalize adult use cannabis. Well, when we talk about Bill Graham in Germany, we're talking about a very, very, you know, dark side and a dark history of Germany. And it, it, it's unavoidable and it's there. And I think to the the credit of the the German nation that they've they've never they haven't shunned from it and they've they've tried very hard to set up their own reminders with museums and other laws to try to prevent these things from ever happening again. But as, as at the same time, uh, when we look at modern Germany, what we really see is a is a very open country in many respects. While they they do have some tradition about them, by the same token, I think that they also go a little bit against the grain. I, I I don't know if you were on the show at the time, but I remember Jim and I discussing a show where we talked about how in Germany they were now printing the local tram tickets on paper that was like blotter for CBD. So after you were done showing the ticket to the conductor, you could put it in your mouth and give yourself a dose of CBD. And I remember thinking at the time, any country that would do that, boy, you know, they're 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 right ahead of the curve. And I think that it's great to see Germany's doing this. It's it's something that you would like to think all of Europe could embrace, but clearly not all of Europe is ready for it yet. And uh, the fact that Germany is going to do it speaks, I think, both to the the nature of their society now and and the kind of openness they have with this kind of thing. And I think it speaks to the fact that in some respects, you know, they're kind of leading the way uh, for what's going on in you know Europe culture right now on, on this side of the on this side of the coin uh, with music and everything else. For so long, it's been certainly Great Britain and France has had its, its inputs and in other countries. But, you know, Germany, I mean, even back in the days of the Beatles, right, with the uh, all the clubs that they would play there in, in uh, Germany and in Berlin, 
um, I think just really speaks to the nature of that society. So it's not entirely surprising that it would be Germany, but at the same time, it's a welcome surprise to see any member of the European Union uh, starting to go in that direction. Yeah, and if you look at the way it's uh, set up, obviously, like, you know, Germany can't do this unilaterally. Like they've, they've passed the vote, but there is a, a lot more red tape that needs to happen in terms of you know, EU support. So I think what Germany is doing in many ways is acting as a catalyst, saying, hey, we are the biggest country in Europe with uh, what, you know, 70 plus million people in that country to say, like, look, guys, get on board. You know, we, we want to move forward to this. We've got this program ready to go. It's, this isn't medicinal anymore. This is now, you know, adults can possess a couple ounces of weed. So I think they're pushing the envelope, uh, forcing other countries to consider it because they're saying we're ready to move forward. So it does this act as a catalyst to, to get, you know, uh, the other major uh, countries being sort of Spain, France, Italy, and the UK. Well, I guess not the UK anymore, but, you know, Spain, France, and Italy is the other major populous countries in Western Europe. Uh, on board this program, I think they've got a very willing partner in Spain, um, but you know the Italians and the uh, and the French are taking a bit longer. But with the Germans, you know, known to be a bit more rigid in many ways than than these other countries to take this first step. I mean, it would say to me that the, the French, I would think, with the natural ones, kind of with their laissez-faire approach to life, to uh, to embrace us, uh, and the Italians, like you know, that's the wild card. <laughs> they could they could do almost anything, and uh, it wouldn't surprise anyone. So. I'm very hopeful that this is the, uh, the, the first step towards much broader, much more sweeping legislative change in the European Union. And I applaud uh, Germany for being the ones to, uh, to kind of ignite the fire here. Absolutely. And now, of course, you know, there are no dummies. Let's see what happens next summer when the latest round of college grads decide to take off to Europe on their URL passes or whatever they use these days. And instead of all gathering in Amsterdam, now they'll have an entire country to go play around in. So, uh, you know, maybe that will work out well and prove an inspiration uh, for other countries looking to attract that type of crowd or maybe not. But we'll, we'll see and hope that it turns out, uh, hope it turns out positive. But either way, hats off to Germany for taking that plunge and leading the way. Yeah, Absolutely. What else do we have? We got a couple other, you know, pretty decent um, pieces of canvas news this week. The Biden drug czar has actually come out in, in pretty strong support of the actions that, that Biden has taken in asking for uh, a real look at reclassification. We've actually gotten even more news on that since the article that, I, that I'm you know, looking at has come out, which is, um, you know, we're, we're getting a fair amount of information coming directly out of the administration saying that this is at least from the FDA, the FDA thinks this is going to be fast-tracked as far as HHS now taking a real look at uh, reclassification, but reaffirming that ultimately is the DEA's decision as to, you know, changes in classification. But, you know, to have the drugs are, I mean, again, this is unprecedented. It's unprecedented to have Biden come out and, and say what he did to say, you know, we need to take a real look at this again, and, you know, I think it's time for a change of classification. But to actually have the drugs are come out and say, you know, there's obvious utility here, and this needs to uh, this needs to be done quickly. You know, I, I I'm a cynic. I always think these things are, are relatively meaningless. But there's enough happening at the uh, the senior level of, of the alphabet agencies and the federal government to say that there is you know something looming on the horizon that they're trying to, to get done. And when you're getting it from the FDA, when you're getting it from Bashara coming out of HHS, you're even getting the DEA you know saying that they're not as uh, opposed to uh, to changing. You know, this is now enough of the top guys at each of these agencies where it's starting to sound hopeful. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think it is starting to sound hopeful. You know, there's one part of me and, and I'm sure a lot of people in, in our type of position that wants to say, well, it's about damn time. But the truth of the matter is that any time is a good time. And it, it didn't happen before, but I'm thrilled. Even, even if it's just 
a, a performance at the moment, even if they're they're not quite ready, but they're they're trying to support the boss by saying these things, which I, I don't have any reason to believe. But I'm saying even if the fact that you have people like this and in these positions at least giving lip service to the fact that these are issues we are now going to look at seriously is so much further along than anyone could have hoped or believed 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. And if you look back, you know, far enough at the people, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and all the folks who went to jail and all the lives that have been ruined and all of that. And all of a sudden, this government that has been the instigator of all that ruin and destruction of people's lives is now finally willing to acknowledge, at least acknowledge that there's another side of that coin. By acknowledging it, it opens the door one step at a time to allow them in whatever manner they need to do it to be comfortable to get there. You know, you and I look at it and say, this is a no brainer. It should have been done years ago, but I don't want to undercut the importance of what we're seeing uh, as all of these people talk. And even if it's just politics, right? Even if it's just because they want to improve turnout for Democrats at the polls, nobody's ever done it before. And the fact that they're willing to take it and make it part of their standard election material and they're not treating it as a third rail anymore. That's 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 such a, a positive step forward. And, you know, that's the way I think I need to look at it for now. And hopefully the, this train continues to move in the right direction so that we get to the point of where everybody says, well, of course, it should be legal. And, and of course, people should be allowed to use it uh, without the fear of a prosecution and jail time or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I mean, you're even seeing it on the state level. I don't know if you saw what happened in Nevada this week, but, you know, there's a, a Nevada judge that came out. And essentially said that it was unconstitutional in Nevada to keep um, cannabis as a Schedule One drug, I believe, on sort of the state's version of the CSA. And what was happening in Nevada is that because of the designation of, of saying that, you know, it's still a Schedule One drug, police were still arresting people for simple possession, even on the medicinal side. And then, you know, challenging whether or not that arrest was legal if they had their medicinal card. And the state would come back and say, oh, well, the, 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 the Board of Pharmacology was uh, unwilling to change the designation. And so for that reason, they thought they had standing to, uh, to go ahead and, and still you know, arrest these people. Well, the judge in Nevada came back and said, absolutely not. The, the voters have spoken. You know, there's now medicinal laws on the books in our state. And it, it's incongruent to, uh, to keep this as a Schedule One that says no medicinal value when it's already been shown clearly that it has medicinal value and we have laws that support that. So, you know, all those people that uh, have been arrested, you know, kind of through a, a backdoor way that uh, law enforcement in Nevada has chosen to do it, um, are, are now able to uh, either get that expunged or able to, uh, to you know, get out of whatever uh, penalties that they're being subjected to, which is, which is great, because now you're actually seeing, you know, people in the position of authority say, no, no, we need to respect the will of the voter and we need to, you know, change these designations. It's untenable to keep this as a Schedule One drug at a state level. Now, whether or not that translates to the same at a federal level, you know, we'll see. But it is sure nice to have, you know, at least some sort of state precedent that isn't binding uh, on, on the feds in any way. But it certainly as dicta is a, uh, is a really nice way to point to it and say, look, we've already looked at this uh, issue from a state perspective, and this is where we came out on it. So, again, I've said many times in the show, I'm an incrementalist. I believe in incremental change. Uh, I don't think sweeping change is the, is the way to get things done. I think that people are very used to certain things. I think as the aging population continues to age out and the younger population that's grown up with cannabis being legal, you know, comes in, then I think, you know, you will have that sort of eureka moment where everything changes. We're, we're not there yet. But, you know, as long as we continue to see minor change happen on a state-by-state basis with, you know, kind of major results that happen each time it does, yeah, I'm increasingly buoyed by you know where the industry is is moving, or at least 
from a social justice perspective, you know, where we're moving as a society to not uh, incarcerate or penalize people for the use of cannabis. That's absolutely correct. And the important thing here that's, and we talked about this last time, that's, that's just so fascinating and so unique to this whole process in terms of where we've gotten to is that the judiciary, which obviously has to respect legal precedent and the laws, but as we've also seen, uh, certainly with the Supreme Court in recent years, uh, maybe prior recent years, not so much the current, but that the you know judiciary tends to ultimately follow societal trends. And I'd like to think that some of these judges making these rulings are merely standing up for the people against the executive branch of government that sometimes just wants to impose its we know what's best on everyone, which is what the whole business of Schedule 1 is all about anyway and how stupid it is. Um, but here's the judiciary standing up for the people and saying, nah, guys, this this is silly now. This doesn't pass the smell test, what you're trying to do here. You know, you're still trying to make this a power play. You're still trying to figure out ways that you can capitalize on it. And for the record, there are few cities that are, that are as bad as the city of Las Vegas in terms of busting people for marijuana. And it's, maybe it's gotten better uh, in some recent years now that, that it's actually legal. But we've talked about being out there for Vegas and other events where they were actively going around and pulling people out of the crowd who were smoking marijuana which is just not something that's good business or, or, or even, you know, good social policy by any means. But yet here they are saying, no, you know, wait a second. These people have some rights now. And, and the, the, the law rec- recognizes that. And uh, we're sorry, law enforcement, but it's just not business as usual anymore. And what's going to be interesting to me is to see whether ultimately law enforcement embraces that idea, um, you know, and says, well, this is okay. You know, we, we now understand. So it helps us redefine what our job is and we're not going to any longer make it our, our business to go about and ruin people's lives. Or are they going to say, screw that and just still continue to use it as a pretext to interrupt people's lives. And in some cases, you know, damage them very badly for something as simple as marijuana possession, which should be so far out of the realm of possibility that people would laugh when they hear it. So the fact that, uh, again, the judiciary is, is, is willing to, to make this kind of a move, that the uh, government level, the, the government agencies at the higher levels that oversee this are willing to start acknowledging things, it's all wonderful. Uh, it's all great. I'm very happy for it. I just hope that we avoid the rescheduling versus descheduling trap. And people are, are smart enough and, and bright enough to realize that the problem is not that marijuana is a Schedule 1. The problem is that marijuana is scheduled. And take that off and let's just let all of us get about on with our lives. Let the people who want to make some money make some money and have a happier society overall. Yeah, I agree. And that's obviously a distinction that you know I wish more politicians would understand and hopefully over time. They'll, uh, they'll figure it out before they make a, a, a cataclysmic change that is detrimental to the entire industry in the process, which I think they would do inadvertently. But, uh, but, but let's hope that they've got enough good advisors out there and they're seeking enough advice from the industry itself to understand you know, how impactful it would be if they were to, to move it to a lower schedule rather than just deschedule completely. But you know, speaking of, of, of kind of agencies that don't always get it, you know, right now we're also watching the major exchanges, whether it's you know, the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. They've, they've taken a very hardline stance on allowing American uh, cannabis companies to list on their exchange. So as many of our listeners know, all the largest uh, multi-state operators technically are, are registered in Canada. They're domiciled in the United States, but they're registered in Canada and, and they are able to trade on their, as a primary exchange on the Canadian Stock Exchange, which is you know, a lesser exchange. 
Uh, it certainly doesn't have the same cachet as the NASDAQ or the NICE, or even for that matter, the TSX in Canada. But we're watching a really interesting thing play out right now, which is an announcement that Canopy Growth made several days ago. And that announcement was that they're going to spin off all of their U.S. operations, which is, you know, Wana Brands, uh, Jetty Extracts. Uh, they've got ownership in several, you know, the larger MSOs. So Acreage being a, the primary deal they struck a couple of years ago where they have an option to buy the rest of that company. Uh, they've got exposure, I believe, to Terrasend as well. So what, what Canopy has said is we no longer feel like waiting. You know, we're not going to wait for federal legalization. Instead, we're going to spin off a portion of our business. It'll be a U.S. base. It'll be Canopy USA. And, um, and that's going to be a, a separate business. The market has reacted very favorably to this. The market you know, has seen uh, a huge amount of, um, of growth and share value over the last several days. And the TSX has already supported you know, the, uh, the move. But it's come out in the last several days that the NASDAQ might not be as supportive because now the NASDAQ is saying, okay, well, this is an end around. And we've been very clear about whether uh, we're going to allow for U.S.-based cannabis businesses to, to be on our exchange. And if your shareholders canopy um, still have exposure to this new company, then are you not just trying to game the system? So very curious to see how this plays out because, you know, if, if, if this isn't blessed by the NASDAQ, then will canopy have to walk this one back at a parent company level and sort of stop the spinoff for fear that they'll be delisted off the NASDAQ, you know, which would be catastrophic to, uh, to Canopy Canada. So I don't know if you've taken a look at this at all or what your thoughts are, but again, it's, you know, government agencies or, or actually in this case, Private, you know, agencies are subservient to government regulations. They're having to make determinations based on, um, you know, current present-day legislation. I agree. What I really like about this is that Canopy is being aggressive. They're they're taking it to these groups and saying, you're going to have to make a decision now. You know, we're, this is what we want to do. Uh, we can't sit around forever and wait. You know, and we, we talked about Canopy a week or two ago because they were divesting of all of their uh, brick and mortar stores up in Canada. And, you know, this is a company that's, uh, you know, looking at what's happening at the times right now and is, is doing its best to adapt. But sometimes, you know, we've talked about how back in the day it was the D'Angelo's who were the who were the litmus people who would go out and push the government, push the envelope as far as they could to see how the government would respond. And I'm excited to see Canopy enter the U.S. market. Uh, I think that more competition is always a good thing. And I will be very curious to see how uh, the, the markets and, and the trading exchanges treat this and, and whether they're you know, going to penalize Canopy as a result of that or whether they're going to acknowledge it as a sign of the times and roll with it. Yeah, I, I think time will tell. But you know, this is now the first... I guess a uh, bit of um, sight we're going to have on how the NASDAQ and the NICE are going to react to this. And I always love it when people push the envelope, you know, if nothing else, just to be told what you can and can't do. But until you ask, you know, the worst that happens is the answer is no. But if you actually, you know, push it a little bit, then you might find out that, uh, that, that you know, groups are more willing to accept than you think. And this is, this is one for the exchanges. I'm still waiting for, you know, these interstate compacts to pop open and see whether or not the feds will do anything about, you know, people that are actually uh, allowing cannabis to cross state lines because everyone believes you can't do it, but no one's really tried, tried it to find out. And I sincerely believe that if, you know, you actually started seeing cannabis move across state lines between contiguous states that, uh, that, that border one another with similar laws, I, I personally don't think the feds are going to step in at this point. Uh, I just don't think that anyone's willing to take that, that chance. I, I, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, wasn't this what we saw a few years back? What was it? M Bank out of Oregon and they were doing just fine. And then they branched off into Colorado and all of a sudden the feds got interested in them and put some heat on them and kind of shut that down. But that was had to be at least five to seven years ago, as I recall, if I'm 
remembering that all correctly. Um, and, you know, look, maybe maybe that's where it starts, right? With, with a company like a bank, uh, once again, trying to reach out for interstate customers and then slowly but surely, you know, the industry following right behind it. And yeah, all it's going to take is one company that's big enough and, and has the resources to be able to take the fight back to the government and, and the, the willingness to do it. And and those people are hard to find. You know, I mean, everybody has their own opinions about the D'Angelo brothers, but you can't deny the fact that those guys went out and pushed the envelope very hard and ultimately made the state of California make some very difficult decisions that I think, you know, really have played a large role in uh the, the legal marijuana market getting to where it is today. And I'm sure those issues would have all eventually been worked out one way or another, but by forcing the government's hand early on and now allowing them to play the, the slow game over time, uh, they expedited matters. And, um, you know, look, we, we talked about it last week, right. With, um, with GTI and their, and their new deal with circle K. I mean, imagine that kind of a deal going down at any time. And, and now all of a sudden they're doing it and you're, you're going to be able to buy marijuana anywhere along the Florida turnpike, which has all sorts of interstate implications, right? I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see what the government does about that. Well, this is, uh, you know, maybe you take a page out of uh, Trump's playbook, which is just flood the zone, you know, every single day, shock and awe, you know, keep, keep doing things so fast that the government can't react quick enough you know, where every day they're they're so taken aback by whatever it is that you know a group pushed forward. You know, again, is there the resources or the desire to to fight all these things simultaneously, or can they even keep up? If everyone just says, "Hey, we're we're no longer playing by these rules," again, any good attorney would would not advocate for their clients to do that. But at the same time, you know, your your thoughts about the D'Angelo's are correct. You know, and if if nothing else, they certainly ended the career of Melinda Haig, who was you know the prosecutor out of uh, out of Oakland, federal prosecutor who, you know, ultimately retired in disgust just by saying, like, I, I can no longer continue to fight these things when every single time I, I, I do anything, any enforcement action I put up is now being challenged, and I'm tied up in red tape for months by Henry Wykowski and, and friends uh, representing the DeAngelis. So on that side of it, I mean, ultimately, can you expose the hypocrisy of, of the government's position by continuing just to, to say, no, we're no longer going to play by these r- ridiculously stupid rules? We, we have to change this industry. We have to change it in a way that allows companies to, uh, to not have to build infrastructure in every single state they go into. Um, you know, again, I'm not saying that I'm all for 100% consolidation, you know, watching the industry end up in the hands of a very, very finite group of people. But, you know, it, it certainly would make a hell of a lot more sense for the industry to be able to operate like any other business when we've already got so many other headwinds facing us, you know, just from a taxation perspective. That, you know, having to build redundant infrastructure everywhere and not being able to, to ship your, your goods across state lines, it, it's untenable. It's untenable for the long term. And somebody, you know, and I think it's going to happen at the state level. I think it's going to happen at the state governor's level where governors are really going to say, like, okay, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm friends with this governor and this governor and this governor, and we've, we're going to set up a compact between ourselves. And if the feds want to do something about it, they've got to come in and explain to us why our states can't make these, um, you know, sort of commerce clause decisions. And uh, you know, I'm very curious to see what the outcome would be there. But I can't imagine right now that uh, based on the administration and based on who's running these alphabet agencies, that they're going to get a tremendous amount of pushback at this moment in time. So if, if there's a, a time to strike, I would say the iron is hot right now. Well, and, and you know, what's fascinating is, is to me is if you really think about this, this is the way the industry has always moved forward. Let's think about going back to the very beginning of the dispensary models that flowed out of California and Colorado that were basically populist uprisings in response to the fact that both states had amended their constitutions to give the citizens the right to consume marijuana 
but never put into place any type of structure to allow people to access, to, to get their hands on marijuana for it to be grown or sold. And finally, people said, the hell with this. And we saw, drive down the side of the road and all of a sudden there's dispensaries out there. And the question was, what would it, what would happen? And some, sometimes the state enforced, sometimes the feds enforced. But as we all know, eventually the dispensaries won out to the point where states said, screw it. We're not going to fight you. We're going to join you. We'll make our own rules. Uh, but we're, we're now going to recognize that you're going to exist. And, and that's, I, I think with marijuana, almost what has to happen at every step. And, and, you know, if, if this is the next step where people say, Hey, look, you know, we, we talked about Gavin Newsom in California doing it and why not? It's a gold mine for them. Uh, a deal between California and Oregon would be a wonderful thing. Uh, you're not changing the status quo of either state in any respect whatsoever. Uh, they're both, you know, somewhat equal in terms of their old guard and the and the the the, the history of, of where they come from with marijuana. Why can't they sell marijuana across that state border and find out that life goes on? And then, you know, the reason is, of course, because what the hell will Kansas do uh, when all of a sudden they realize that people can drive over to Colorado, buy marijuana, and bring it back to Kansas? You know, and that begins to create a problem for some states, but for the rest of us, you know, the hell with that it's all silly, right? Why can't I get on an airplane in one legal state with marijuana when I'm flying to another legal state? Why should I have to get rid of all my stuff, fly to that state and buy something new, assuming that's what I do. But you know, it, 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 it's time to change all of this. And I was about to say, who does that anymore? Come on, well, come on man. This, this is our I official mean, show. So, you know, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, raise your hands out there if you're scared of TSA anymore. I'm, I don't think I know anyone that is, uh, at least not for, you know, carrying a small amount of canvas in your, in your carry-ons. Uh, you know, and look, a lot of a lot of our airports have already said we don't really care if that if you're doing, especially if you're flying, let's say from you know Colorado to Massachusetts. But you know, look, even what Mason Tavert did, you know, and having Mason on the show is so great to, to have him sort of explain it. But you know, legalization in Colorado ten years ago was um, was radical, yeah. right? And completely radical. You know, now there's 19 states that have it. So you know, if it wasn't for Mason standing up and going, well, great, medicinal is one thing, but you know, we're actually going to take the next step. I mean, at that time, there was a lot of fear. Like, are the feds going to come in next week? Are they going to go, absolutely not. Are they going to, you know, call Hickenlooper and say, if you even think about implementing this thing, we're coming down with the full weight of the federal government. That didn't happen. And so, as I said, I, I don't think there's any appetite there. I think there's a lot of people that sit in compliance departments of legal, the legal departments of some of these larger companies that go, guys, you know, just don't be the one. Like, you know, you, like you always want to be the second fastest car on the highway, right? You know, you don't want to be the one that gets pulled over. So, um, in this case... Do you want to be the, uh, the the first one to stick your neck out? I mean, look for all the D'Angelo's did. They certainly got their uh, their 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 you know sort of head chopped off a few times in the process. So you know who wants to be the uh, the sacrificial lamb? You know what I would say is that oftentimes in this industry you're not the sacrificial lamb. If you're the one that moves and you do it in a in a way that makes sense, uh, you know you find out that there probably isn't as much appetite for enforcement as you think. Anyway, lots of stuff we could discuss here, but look, I think we're forgetting about our buddy Bill Graham. Let's not do that. He's too important. Yeah, let's not do that. And again, uh, you know, some of our, our show's been running pretty long recently. I thank all of our listeners out there for, for staying you know, with us all the way through these tangents that, that Larry and I go on. Uh, it's hard for us sometimes to balance the, uh, the importance of the music with the importance of what's happening in the industry. Which uh, you know, I think we could, we could probably at some point bifurcate this into the Grateful Dead show and the, and the cannabis show, but uh, but we kind of like having the two joined together. But yeah, going going back to this four night run, you know, I tried to pick out some highlights, and there's a couple we're gonna, we're going to get to here in a minute. But you know, one of the songs we don't cover as much, uh, I think, as as we should, is uh, is Stella Blue, and I think the Stella from this night 
was really representative of a, of a good 91 Stella. It was before they you know, started doing what they did with so many roads or with um, Standing on the Moon where they started coming back and you know, they do the, uh, the ending and then a jam and then do the ending again. You know, it used to just be that when Stella ended, it, it ended. It was, you know, the final, you know, and it was, it was quiet. It wasn't wailing and moaning and, and you know, kind of Garcia-like emotions. It was usually, uh, you know, just a very, very pretty ending. And that kind of ended in late 92, early 93. But at the end of 91, they were still doing the, the more traditional ending. But, you know, there's, there's certain parts of that song that I think are, are kind of what, you know, the fans know as, as the, uh, the, the more powerful parts of what I think is, you know, probably through the years that I'd say one of the Grateful Dead's most beautiful songs. So I don't know if Dan, you can keep up a little bit of the Stella from the, uh, from the second night of this uh, run. You know, I love Stella. It's such a great song. And I'm it, it, when I stop and think about it, though, it's funny because, you know, we've often talked about the Jerry tunes that would oftentimes occupy that spot late in the second set, post drums. Certainly there's Morning Dew and, and Morning Dew is almost in a, a whole category, you know, all by itself. And then, you know, we have uh, Warfred and Warfred is such a such a powerful tune and uh, has its own message and 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 really it, it it was the genesis of the beautiful jam. I mean, it's just it's it's such a an amazing song. And, th- and then we had Black Peter, right? We talk about Black Peter almost as if it's the oh, here's Black Peter. I was really hoping for Morning Dew, but kind of getting lost in the shuffle of all of that is Stella Blue. And you know, once every four or five shows, as the rotation went around for Jerry, Stella Blue would would make its appearance there. And it, again, it was one of those songs where maybe at the first note, if I was really hoping for a do, I'd pull back. But by the time Jerry started playing it and singing it and getting to the end of the song, and, and I do recall the change in the ending from the everything up to 92 and then everything after. And he he did make that a kind of a trademark of some of his ballads at the end of them uh, during that period of time. But Stella Blue is just such a solid tune and just so so great to listen to on a, on a good night when they're really playing and and jerry's uh just jamming on it and i've stayed in every blue light cheap hotel and just wailing and uh it, it's tremendous yeah i mean i was thinking of stella as you know the way i think of mission in the rain as being an ode to, to san francisco i was thinking of stella as being kind of an ode to the west village in new york and you know to to the the ginsburgs and the cassidy's and the beats of, of the uh, of the 50s and the chelsea hotel and you know, all this kind of stuff that went down in that era, you know, I think that Stella encapsulates that feeling really, really well. And when I kind of look at who those guys were and what they're accomplishing as, as poets and as, uh, as, you know, pushing the envelope of a different scene, you know, Stella, it's a, it, to me, it's such a powerful song. And it's just like, a, in terms of just sheer beauty, I think it's, you know, arguably the prettiest song Grateful Dead ever played. 
Yeah, I think that argument can definitely be made, and especially on those nights when Jerry was really feeling it, and and you know both the guitar side of it and the singing side of it were all just coming together, and uh, he could really hold the crowd with it very, very well. So uh, nobody ever went home sad that they saw Stella Blue. Yeah, no doubt. But as this run went on, you know, you knew you were in for something special uh, based on you know kind of what led up to it, and again, everyone was waiting to see where the Grateful Dead really celebrated Bill's life. And uh, I think the surprise that came out on the 31st of, of October, to me, maybe one of the greatest things the Grateful Dead ever did in terms of just sheer volume of power in their music. And of course, I'm referring to the Dark Star on the 31st, where, you know, after the first verse, out of nowhere, out comes um, Ken Kesey. And Ken lays into you know, kind of a, a Keezy rap, you know, which he, he did from time to time, you know, not, not too often, but I don't think anything like he did on this night. And, you know, already the Dark Star is a pretty powerful Dark Star, and here comes Keezy marching up to the stage to talk about Bill Graham. And uh, culminating, I think, in, you know, the, the E.E. Cummings poem uh, called Buffalo Bill's Defunct, and, uh, or just Buffalo Bill. But, you know, before that, Keezy was talking about uh, the, you know, kind of just the, the whole scene, the, the Grateful Dead scene, I think as he referred to it, in any given situation, there's more dumb people than smart people, and we ain't many. And him talking about, you know, the relationship the Grateful Dead had with him and the relationship that the Bill Graham had with, with him, and that, you know, at one point Bill Graham, when, when Ken's uh, son died in a tragic car accident at the top of a hill in Oregon, Bill sent him $1,000 to put up a, a sign that pointed in every direction. So any person that was cresting the top of that hill, you know, kind of, you know, knew where the, uh, the, the different directions were as a reminder of, of, of Ken's son's passing. But there was a special part of this song that um, was kind of at the peak of like just Phil just dropping bomb after bomb and Garcia just like just hammering on his guitar where um, it just built into like a frenzy. You know, I'd love to cue up with just a bit of that if we could, Dan. But nobody else reaches I don't know if you've had a chance to really listen to that one before, Larry, but I used to play that one over and over and over again just because of just... It's as crazy as I'd ever seen anything on stage, you know, coming out of the Grateful Dead in the early 90s, was, was that Dark Star. And that Dark Star, if you listen to the whole thing top to bottom, it, that pre-drums uh, portion, the first verse, is just just absolutely nuts. I, I like that Dark Star. I love the Ken Kesey coming out and doing his rap. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about shows where, where Ken Nordine would do the spoken voice thing um, and other people would join the dead from time to time. But Kesey, there's a special symmetry with it being Kesey doing it and it, because what it really does is it takes us from the very beginning of the Grateful Dead, right? The acid test. This was all, this was Ken Kesey's stuff. And he brought the Grateful Dead in as the house band. And, and that's where the Grateful Dead really 
really got their start and, and became something that ultimately uh, evolved into a whole relationship with Bill Graham. So it's only natural uh, that following Bill Graham's demise that Kesey would circle back in and, and kind of complete that circle and, and really join. And and to me, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the electric Kool-Aid acid test and just reading about all of that era, which is, I'm sure, why Primal Dead appeals to me as much as it does. But this whole idea of these guys reconnecting, you know, 25, 30 years later after the acid tests and, and you know, bringing together one another for a moment with the same kind of just reckless, grateful dead music making and and Ken Kesey doing whatever it is that he does best and and telling the story. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that I wasn't there to see it live because uh, I'm sure it would have been a, an extremely powerful moment and you can just feel it listening to it on the tapes afterward, but it's, 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 it's as good a way as I can imagine uh, for the Grateful Dead to pay tribute to um, Bill Graham. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously after that, that being Halloween night was supposed to be the end of the run. The next day they added, or two days later, I think they added an additional show and they did in Golden Gate Park and it was billed as Laughter, Love and Music, which I think actually is November 3rd. So three days later. And that wasn't just the Grateful Dead. That was, um, you know, John Fogarty, Robin Williams, Journey, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash came back and reunited for it. A handful of other people, you know, did stuff uh, via video. But it was, um, you know, 300,000 people showing up in Golden Gate Park to pay tribute to Bill Graham and the impact that Bill had on San Francisco music. And so, you know, I, I talked about in the beginning of the show that they opened up the first night of the Oakland run with the Sugar Mags. But as a tribute, they closed the uh, the set in Golden Gate Park with the Sunshine Daydream, which we'll listen to as we're, we're kind of signing off on the show. But to sandwich essentially five days of music between a Sugar Magnolia uh, made you realize that you know the entire run was all a tribute. All of it was for Bill. And I think what was even cooler is that you know once it was over, you know the Grateful Dead you know got off stage. Neil Young came out and played Forever Young, which you know is a, a Bob Dylan cover. And there was, you know, one or two other songs played as well. But, you know, everyone, everyone there had their chance to, to say goodbye. So, you know, a really, really unique way for, you know, all the bands that have Bill impacted through their careers to, uh, to come back and, and, you know, pay tribute to him and say thank you to all the things he did for them and for their community. So hard to not, you know, do a show at some point to celebrate the, uh, the life and impact of Bill Graham on music in general, and especially on the Grateful Dead's career. So for me, that's, that's you know, pretty much all I've got to say today. Uh, looking forward to coming back next week. And uh, thanks, as always, to, uh, to Larry Michigan as uh, my, my partner on the show and to, to Dan Humiston as our producer. But this is Rob Hunt signing off from Southern California. Larry? Yeah, thanks, Robin. And I just want to add this because, you know, when you talk about that sandwich and you talk about, you know, as as a full dedication to to Bill Graham, it is. But what it really speaks to is the unique way in which the Grateful Dead played music. And and they were the band that that first created this idea of a sandwich, two songs that would normally come together now being separated by a set of music or maybe an entire show or in this case, even a five day span. And we see other bands do it now and other bands have, you know, have, have done it very well, too. But it was something that was so unique for the Grateful Dead. And it, it makes me, and I think this is very appropriate as, as we wind down now, uh, it makes me think of the Bill Graham quote that, that in my mind is the most famous quote about the Grateful Dead that anybody has ever spoken uh, when he said that the Grateful Dead are not the best at what they do. They are the only ones that do what they do. 
and it's it's a it's a statement that that is perfect and succinct and captures the entire essence of the Grateful Dead and the Grateful Dead community. And it's no secret that, you know, they were inextricably linked that way and that, you know, whatever, whatever Bill Graham's life was, somehow his purpose was to associate with the Grateful Dead and to help make them who they are, the only ones that do what they do and, and, and really the best. So that's my thoughts on that. Otherwise, great show. Uh, I'm very excited to catch the Tranastasio band tonight being actually uh, the Friday night entry into the uh, Halloween weekend and without fish doing their traditional show. Uh, those of us here in Chicago uh, who can't compete with the younger kids for the Halloween tickets get to finally see Trey and uh, looking forward to doing that with my good buddy uh, Rob from Chicago as opposed to my good buddy Rob from San Diego. Uh, but at the next show, I will have my... Uh, my own review of uh, Trey and uh, and what he did for us tonight, but uh, certainly looking forward to it. Uh, it's, it's just a great continuation of the line of music, uh, and uh, Bill Graham can probably take some credit for that too. So thank you, Rob, for everything. I'll let you sign off and just tell all our friends to enjoy themselves and enjoy their cannabis responsibly. Walk you in the tall trees Going where the wind goes Booming, booming like the rainbows so come on over, sweet man. While I sing, I got you in the morning sunshine. Now come on over, sunshine daydream, sunshine daydream. Come on over, daydream, sunshine daydream. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.